Okay, tell me what these things have in common. Uh, flying an F-16 fighter jet, painting a masterpiece on a canvas, and enjoying a Sabbath rest. They are all things I have little or no experience in. <laughs> uh, for me to preach on this topic of enjoying a rhythm of rest in our lives is kind of like a drunken man speaking on sobriety or a man addicted to porn addressing how to find you know, sexual purity. Restlessness and workaholism have been a part of my life. It sometimes was a, a point of pride, but it's actually something to confess as sin in my life. It's not unique to pastors, but there is a special entrapment that pastors get in because it's exacerbated and sanctified by talk of you're doing the Lord's work. From his book, Subversive Sabbath by A.J. Swoboda, comes this zinger for pastors. Because we pastors rarely practice Sabbath, we rarely preach the Sabbath. And because we do not preach the Sabbath, our congregations are not challenged to take it seriously themselves. The result of our Sabbath amnesia is that we've become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. Perhaps an honest inventory of our lives and our families would reveal jam-packed schedules, increased stress, and priorities that are chosen mostly for emotional reasons. We try to, you know, assuage our children, please our children, and uh, then we try to fit in with our other friends with these activities instead of in intentionally aligning our values with the will of God. So what also says that there are nine commandments that if I uh, chose to break, I might lose my ministry over. But if I did not keep a Sabbath day, I would probably get a raise. And finally, modern church has basically been built on no rest. Our church industrial complex, I love that, our church industrial complex, and boy, that's a fair description, generally rewards Sabbath breaking as a rule. <laughs> so not only does our Western culture reward workaholism, so does the religious culture. Yeah. So how can I preach about freedom in Christ when I am a slave to workaholism? Now, I don't want to overstate my own predicament. I mean, there are seasons in which I have rested, can be refreshed, okay? But it's just not regular, not consistent. I want to just make sure we're up front here about, you know, me talking about this topic because I am a fellow struggler with this who needs a better track record. But I'm convinced that we can make changes, that under the Spirit of God, we can acknowledge our shortcoming and allow the Lord to work in our lives. Amen? Okay. So you can pray for your pastor. Let's pray right now. Father, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. We're talking about a subject that not a lot of us have a whole lot of practice in. But we need to do better, not for the sake of just amping up our performance, but for the sake of uh, bowing before you on a regular basis and allowing you to adjust our, our priorities and speak to us. And so uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would would do a work in all of us today. Infuse this time together with 
with a holy unction. And may your Holy Spirit give us specifics uh, to each individual on how they might practice rest and Sabbath. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I am to rest well, I must learn how to say no to certain things. Saying no to some things means that I am saying yes to greater things. Saying no to some things means I am saying yes to greater things. The yes is what compels me. That yes is an improved relationship with God, improved relationships, healthier relationships with family, clarity of thought, a rejuvenation of body, soul, and spirit. So I I hope to pave a better way instead of running a rat race. We are not rats. And our race is not for a piece of cheese at the end of a confusing maze. The Apostle Paul would say, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So we practice self-discipline by learning to say no to anything that keeps us from getting that imperishable reward. Now, when something is imperishable, obviously, it is, it is not temporary. It reverberates throughout eternity. I'd like to deposit that perhaps what is permanent here, what is imperishable, is not something but someone. In fact, when discussing rewards in heaven, the Apostle Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is the person of Jesus Christ. The the richest of rewards is a relationship with Christ that's unhindered, that is intimate as we live in dependent faith upon him. Now, certainly there are other rewards that we enjoy, but at the apex is this relationship with Christ that's unhindered. And I love that picture that John gives in Revelation 3 that, you know, it's an invitation to come and sup with him, to to come for dinner. This is an invitation for Christians, not for non-Christians for salvation. It's intimate fellowship to rest or Sabbath well is to say no to anything that encroaches upon our worship and relationship with Christ. Now, let me just deposit this. I know we probably intuitively know this, but this doesn't happen by accident, right? You have to deliberately say no in order to say yes to a greater thing. So let's talk about some things that we can say no to The first point might seem rather odd, but I hope it'll make sense here in in a couple minutes. We have to say no to legalistic prescriptions on the Sabbath and say yes to freely choosing boundaries. Now, preaching a message on the Sabbath is fraught with all kinds of potholes by veering off in what I think are misapplications of the Old Testament law and legalism. And frankly, I'm amazed at all the reading I've done about this and many authors and and articles, 
how many do not address this from a new covenant perspective and how that changes the scenery. So let me just state clearly how I would interpret this, and certainly there are others who disagree, and trust me, I know there are others who disagree with all the reading I've done, but I don't think we're under the law to keep the Sabbath. There is not one, not one New Testament injunction instructing us to keep it, though there are examples that are represented. So it brings up the question, then why in the world are you preaching on it today, right? I'll deal with that in a couple minutes. But let's, let's take a, a, a brief theological dive into the reasons why we're not under the law to keep the Sabbath. The first is the New Testament states we're no longer required to keep a Sabbath day. In Colossians, Paul says the Sabbath is a shadow of Christ, no longer binding it. It looks forward to something. Uh, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's something greater than what you just enjoy in a Sabbath. When Paul was dealing with legalism in the Galatians, he laments, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The apostle Paul basically takes the Sabbath off the table as a rule we must follow and inserts it into a category of following our conscience. Remember, he's dealing with congregations of Gentile and Jews. And so the pressure from the Jews upon the Gentiles to follow the Sabbath and and circumcision was, was intense. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. And then in verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. This is out of Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So if one believes in the Sabbath as a commandment and another does not, we're not to judge one another about that. If one is to practice the Sabbath and you don't take it quite so literally, Paul says you're still to accept one another. I might add that not once did Paul ever warn the churches in any of his epistles of not following the Sabbath. He actually removed it, I think, rather plainly, from the required category. People were free to rest or follow a Sabbath, but it was not required for salvation or to keep your salvation. In fact, when the Jerusalem Council met in Acts 15 and they gave a list to the Gentiles of what we wanted you to do, Sabbath was not among them. Was that on that list? We also see that the Old Testament prescription for the Sabbath was for the Jews and not for the Gentiles. The Sabbath was a sign to Israel and their Mosaic covenant. We read in Exodus 31, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. 
And then we also read in Ezekiel 20, moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So since we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant, we're no longer required to observe its sign, the Sabbath. Now, it's indeed an odd occurrence a Sabbath was meant to be an eternal moral principle, given that context. We do know that God took a rest from creation in Genesis, and after this first mention of rest, there is silence for 2,500 years on the topic until Exodus 16, which was the installation of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, if we're to follow the law and the Sabbath, we can't pick and choose what parts we keep. When Paul was dealing with circumcision being a requirement for Gentile believers by the Jews, he said, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, Galatians 5.3. You'd be hard-pressed to find two things the Jews felt more strongly about than circumcision and the Sabbath. So if the Gentile Christian man in Galatia lived by necessity of this part of the law, they were by the same act pledging their allegiance to the whole law. I mean, can you imagine somebody who gets a job and tells their boss, you know what, I'm just going to follow you and obey you and do what you tell me to do with the things that I feel like doing. No, he's obligated to do all that the boss says or he's going to lose his job, right? The law is an entire unit. We cannot choose what part we will or will not keep if we live under it. So Christians seeking to live under the law are always in debt with this sense of obligation, and that obligation can suffocate the joy right out of the Christian life, and we could all see examples of that of people who live under this this stench of legalism. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you want to do that, good luck, because there's a lot of shame and disappointment that goes along with it. What it does in the whole trajectory of Galatians is it takes the focus off of Christ and what he has done. So when you, when you live by this performance, thinking you're meriting God's favor by your performance instead of the work of Christ, you are denigrating our salvation in Christ by trying to keep the law. When it came to keeping the Sabbath law, the Old Testament prescription was rather specific. You were to not leave your home, according to Exodus 16, 29. You were not allowed to start a fire in Exodus 35, 1 through 3. I mean, what are believers to do in this age when they're in the winter months? They don't have access to electricity. Can we abide by the principle of rest without the legalistic requirements of the Old Testament law? Can that be done? Actually, we do it all the time. Let me just first make that point. We do this all the time. 
right? I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many men in here have been circumcised? I would bet at least 95%. But you're not circumcised because you believe that it is law to do so, but you subscribe that there are health benefits. It's the same with some of the dietary laws in the Old Testament. You agree uh, that some things are good, some things are not. You choose to do that. And actually, tithing would fit in that. I don't think we have to tithe as a law. I think we give regularly and sacrificially, but tithing per se, a certain percentage, was a part of the Old Testament law and not a part of the New Testament economy. But we're not to judge one another on these things, as we learned in Romans. And we're free to practice the the Sabbath rest. And we're free not to do it, apparently. But I'd like to make the case today that I think that there is wisdom in resting. There's wisdom in doing a Sabbath, and from henceforth when I talk about the Sabbath, I mean not in a legalistic, obligatory sense, but in a in a wisdom sense of saying no to certain things, having self-discipline to say no to things in order to say yes to a better thing. So I don't want to get hung up on how we practice it. That will be actually for a later message. But just try to make a case today that it's wise to practice a rhythm of rest, just like it's wise to give, but not feel like you're under an obligation to tithe, right? You're, you're, You're wise to... Eat smart, but you're not obligated to an Old Testament law of uh, what foods you can or, or cannot eat. So here's the first. Say no to distractions. Say yes to loving God well. Hebrews 4 is a treatise on enjoying the rest of God. Uh, Hebrews 4.3 says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, he's uh, connecting the dots between the rest of God that we enjoy, and the creation. And at the conclusion of creation, God rested from his project because it was accomplished and because his work was good. It was a rest of satisfaction and enjoyment. And so he longs that ultimately all his people should enter into this satisfaction and enjoyment, right? This provision is exemplified in the completion of God's work in creation. It's as if God was saying to those believers there who were the recipients of the book of Hebrews, as God looked back on on Israel and all of their disobedience, he's saying, the promise is still good. Because it said in, in Hebrews, since then it remains. What remains? The promise of God's rest. Even though Israel is disobedient for the Sabbath, there's still a promise that you will receive rest. Now, it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Since God made that original promise at creation, it's true centuries later as well. So if you're you're disobedient, you know, if you deny all of that, you're not gonna appreciate a rest. Now, ultimately, that passage is about enjoying the rest that we have in Christ, in the gospel. So God desires that we enter rest in Christ now and enjoy all the benefits therein. You know, the the Sabbath was intended to be a blessing, not a burden. Above everything else, it was a 
It was a sign that God loves his people and wanted to draw them into an intimate relationship. And those who valued that relationship enjoyed the Sabbath. They would, they would call it a delight and honorable as it's called in, or the law of God is called in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14, where it says the commands of God are a delight and honorable. In fact, some Jewish fathers on the morning of the Sabbath would give their children a spoon filled with honey. The idea was that they would always remember the sweetness of the Sabbath for the rest of their lives. Now, if there ever were a picture of what we can enjoy in the Sabbath, it's a moment, even though it's not specifically about the Sabbath, I think it provides a great picture. It's a it's a moment right after Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, a story that most of us are familiar with. But there's a, a little detail in there that I think deserves some attention. There we see a man who is a commercial fisherman by trade. You know, I, I, I picture him with a, a sunburned skin, calloused hands. In fact, he was called the son of thunder by Jesus. He's the epitome of, of manliness and strength. And then we read in John 13, 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We know that this was John. Think of this. His head on the chest of Jesus. John was literally listening to the heart of God. Imagine if we got rid of all our distractions and dedicated a day to listen to his heart, to draw close, to lay our head on him. To me, that's a great picture of the Sabbath. We also say no to thinking I'm indispensable and in control. And we say yes to the sovereign and creative work of God. Constant busyness with no planned rest can be a symptom of us thinking that, you know what, the world cannot get along without me. I'm indispensable. More often than not, the only way a workaholic can feel good about their life is if they are burning out doing it. So Boda says, we want scars to brag about we have, as Barbara Brown Taylor writes, made an idol of exhaustion. The only way we know we have done enough is when we're running on empty and when the ones we love most are the ones we see least. I've shared with you before that my family on two different occasions has done an intervention with me, much like you would do with an alcoholic, only my issue was not alcohol. It was just being a toad, and that's the Greek word for workaholic, not being around, being irritable. The antidote to this kind of workaholism is stopping and acknowledging that God is sovereign, and I am not. I am not in control. You know, Sabbath can be an ideal time for us to acknowledge 
our frailties and our limitations. You know what? We can say no to some things. You know what happens? The world still turns. We can have boundaries, good and proper boundaries, and live without a crippling fear that we're letting somebody down. God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. The climax of creation was not human beings. Rather, the day of rest is the climax. When creation all comes together and lives in peace and harmony with one another. Sabbath is not the break earned at the end of completing all the work. You know why? Because there's always more work for us. There's always something more to accomplish, right? Rest takes place in the middle of all of that. To acknowledge the created order of God and his sovereign control. And that I'm not. He's the potter. I'm the clay. We also say no to the cultural mindset of constant activity and consumption and say yes to resting from work and embracing familial relationships. Corey Ten Boom once wrote, if the devil cannot make us bad, he will make us busy. Here are some factors to consider. 500 years of video are uploaded to Facebook every day. 100 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. The average person checks their phones, anybody want to guess how many times a day? 150. Average. Average. This kind of compulsivity has led to a, a new kind of slavery that Joseph Ratzinger, who was Pope Benedict, called it a slavery of activity. As a day set aside, the Sabbath is a reminder that all of time is a creator's gift, a fact that we acknowledge when we consciously give back to God a part of what's already his anyway, right? Listen, a Sabbath is not vacation. A Sabbath is not a day off. It's an intentional tuning out from the information and consumption of the world to tune in to God and those closest to us. The fact is we stink at vacations anyway. Studies reveal that 37% of Americans take fewer than seven days of vacation a year. Americans take the shortest paid vacations of anyone in the world. Here's where my workaholism comes in. I feel guilty every vacation I take. I know, don't, don't come up to me and tell me, you don't need to feel guilty. I understand it, all right? I get four weeks of vacation a year. I've never taken four weeks in any year. I feel guilty doing it. It's not good. I'm acknowledging you to you that that's not good. 20% of those who do vacation spend their vacation staying in touch with their jobs through their computers or phones. See, a Sabbath 
is embracing what is most important. That means work takes a back seat. One author said, Sabbath is not a wage for our hard work. Sabbath is not a benefits package. Rather, work is a reflection of Sabbath keeping. Work is a benefit of our rest. We got it backward. Years ago, one researcher discovered something interesting about Sabbath in Jewish communities. Mortality rates plummet on the Sabbath. Uh, How could it be that fewer people die on the Sabbath? Well, the researcher concluded that even the sick and terminally ill rallied for the Sabbath day because it was a chance to be with family and friends. Sabbath creates a kind of community that we can look forward to, that people waited a day to die before, because Sabbath community was so rich and meaningful to them that they did not want to miss it. In some Jewish traditions, Sabbath was a day to enjoy marital sex. In fact, in some Orthodox communities, one was obliged to have sex on the Sabbath with one's spouse. That right there just convinced 75% of the men in this audience to practice the Sabbath. So there you go. Say no to achievement as my identity. Say yes to God's love and redemptive work that values me. So the Sabbath is God's signpost pointing not only to his goodness toward all men as their creator, but also to his mercy that he expresses to us as our redeemer. We acknowledge that in our weakness, God has God has reached out to us. He's provided us mercy. At the end of the passage on rest in Hebrews, we read, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Sabbath causes us to just stop and and consider and, and drink in how much he loves us, what he's done for us, in Christ. You've heard of the phrase, the sweat of our brow, right? You know, it does not mean that physical labor is cursed. Rather, it was an ancient way of speaking of a new anxiety surrounding work that is propelled by fear and accomplishment. Sin, in the words of Sandra Richter, causes work to become about perspiration-inducing Fear. When humanity ceases to work as God intended and starts to worry about its work identity, it follows the culture. When we take time to Sabbath, though, we're not thinking about all that. We're thinking about our relationship with him, our relationship with others. It's a weekly reminder of our identity is not in what we do, but in the fact that there's an almighty God who loves us, who values us. Sabbath rest is an invitation to say no to achievement for identity. To say no to the cultural mindset of 
constant activity and consumption. To say no to thinking that I am in control, that I am indispensable. To say no to distractions. And it's to say yes to appreciating God's love and redemptive work. It's to say yes to resting from work, embracing family relationships. It's to say yes to the sovereignty and the creative work of God in worshiping and loving God well. I want to just have you think about this for a second. Do we pay a price to deny ourselves rest? I think so. I think so. I think the price might be cumulative, but it's a price nonetheless. So Boda writes, this seven-day week is not something that can or should be tinkered with, although some have tried to. In 1793, France, in an effort to increase human productivity, de-Christianized the calendar by modifying the seven-day week to a 10-day week. New clocks were even invented to reflect the revised week. The experiment, however, radically failed. Suicide rates skyrocketed. People burned out and production decreased. Why? It turns out that humans were not made to work nine days and rest only one in a week. We were made to work six days and rest one. The seven-day rhythm is sacred. The seven-day week is not the result of human ingenuity. Rather, it's the reflection of God's brilliance. 